This is your home for St. Cloud State Hockey, keeping you up to date on the NCHC. Women's WCHA. Dana Rasmussen fires and she scores! Dana Rasmussen for the Huskies. The National Hockey League. Kaprizov in for a chance to win it. He scores! Thrill the thrill is for real! Welcome to the NHL, a game winner. And everything from the state of hockey. Cloud Cathedral is now 42.6 seconds away from wrapping up the school's first ever title. Welcome to the Huskies Warming House Podcast Den. Welcome into episode number 114 here on the Huskies Warming House podcast. We are recording this Saturday, June 4th. Uh, just getting ready, actually, I think about halfway through the third period of the Colorado Avalanche game. So we're going to talk everything related to round number two at the end of the main portion of the show here on the Huskies Warming House podcast. We do have an update and more developments related to uh, the CHL Hockey Canada lawsuits that have been going on. Some more information related to that. We'll touch on that in the early portion of the show. And then our extra ice session. The question uh, remains kind of a brain teaser of sorts, if you will. Uh, who has been the most dominant skater or out player essentially in the NHL playoffs so far? Who's been the best goalie and who has been the best coach uh, throughout the first two rounds and change here in the Stanley Cup playoffs. As always, we start with Center Ice View News and Notes in the Huskies Illustrated Weekly Roundup. Center Ice View News and Notes. Center Ice View provides you with the best coverage of St. Cloud State Huskies hockey from game notes, recaps, photos, and more. Go to centericeview.com. Illustrated Weekly Roundup Noah, and we're going to start things off in, well, the other America's wasteland. We're talking about Arizona. <laughs> so, um, so I'm actually, I'll say this. It's not good news. It's positive news. And I frame it that way, Noah, because the city council, that being Tempe, did vote to um, enter in negotiations um, with the Arizona Coyotes on a proposed development um, valid at nearly $2 billion. Now, this would include a new arena for the franchise. It would also include, from what has been reported, a 30-year non-relocation agreement from what um, we're seeing reports coming out of that uh, city council meeting. Uh, five to two was the vote in favor of it. A very lengthy meeting, seven hours uh, in total on Thursday night. There were um, uh, appearances by Shane Doan, who, mind you, is in the front office of Arizona, a couple of the players. Uh, there was also obviously some uh, uh, some uh, some folks from uh, the uh, the uh, Phoenix Sky Harbor Airport. There were folks that were opposed to it. Um, more than 100 people, in fact, uh, were, um, in fact, part of the uh, deliberations, more than 220 written statements. Um, so why do I say Sky Harbor, right? Um, is basically they have concerns about the part of the development project, which would include the housing component um, because the land is 9,800 feet away from the end of one of its runways. Now, for those who know aviation, you know, that's 
not that far away. And mind you, when you get that close, there is height restrictions involved. There's certainly very strict safety protocols that the FAA has. Um, and in fact, it, it got as far as to say that even one of the attorneys for the Arizona Coyotes, Noah, went as far as that Phoenix Sky Airport doesn't really care about the development. They eventually want to expand the runway, so they're trying to protect that land. Um, so they didn't necessarily oppose the proposal per se, uh, but said that the, uh, the sound insulation would not be, um, if, uh, essentially good enough uh, for the more than 1000 residential buildings that, that would be built directly underneath its flight path. Now, there is some validation to this, though, and I'll get your opinion in a second. In fact, um, the Minneapolis airport, um, for those who know a couple of the runways there that go over essentially the downtown area, there was um, the MAP or the Metropolitan Airports, or MAC, I should say, uh, the uh, uh, Metropolitan Airports Commission. They actually uh, spent money to further sound insulate some of those houses that were in uh, the dual runways coming into Minneapolis-St. Paul International Airport. So there is something to be said there. But I want to get your take on at least the city council moving forward. I'm not necessarily surprised by this move, but I think, again, some people are taking this, I think, too much as a positive. And really what this is, is now they're getting down to the details, which where a lot of people have talked about is this is where the deal of what we know and what we're speculating, this is where things could fall apart or potentially maybe something else happens. What the hell is the deal with Gary Bettman trying to put a 30 year uh, no relocation agreement into this clause? I don't get that. And I understand it from the NHL's perspective in terms of trying to keep the Arizona Coyotes in this franchise. And it's weird because obviously so many of these franchises, right? You look at Atlanta, you look at, you know, the old Winnipeg Jets, you look at the Hartford Whalers. A lot of these teams didn't get second or third chance opportunities. We're on like number 28 for the Coyotes. And the thing that is, yeah. (laughs) And the thing that is more intriguing, yeah, don't even get me started about, um, uh, is it Mitchell Miller uh, in the USHL having his resurgence? uh, Interesting. Um, But beyond that 30 year, no relocation, Nick, most NHL venues do not last 30 years when it comes to arenas and the updates that happen within the span of three decades. That's the scary part. It's not the fact that, you know, they're going to have potentially this big, glitzy, glamorous things and that you can talk about the finances. You can talk about where assets are actually placed on top of this. And we've only started negotiations. There's no real thing set in stone at this point that says, yep, this is happening. Here it is. Here's how it's laid out. It, this 30 years to set up a building that's supposed to be sustainable or has the ability to be modifiable from an organization that one has to find a way to front load the cost of the arena in the first place, and then be able to generate enough finances and enough, you know, stability to add on to this arena. If so, not being able to relocate for 30 years, that. I feel like that's such a hampering thing for this organization. I disagree. You know, I don't know that it's the nail in the coffin by any means, but like 30 years is a long time where, you know, like, for example, if the Coyotes build this brand new arena and five years down the line, they're putting, they're in the exact same spot and they're financially unstable. What then? What then? So, but but here's what you're missing, Noah, is that what makes what has made the Arizona Coyotes financially unstable? It's not been the franchise itself, it's been the ownership. Yeah. And I think what and, and to your point, this could this little caveat could either make the deal or it could have actually it could break it. Um, if you're the city council, and here's why I say that when you have 
an organization that's had the checkered past that the Coyotes have had, right? And with the, well, equally checkered past that Alex Marawello has had as a businessman and his reputation within mm-hmm. um, the Desert Valley that is um, in Arizona, I think there is essentially what Gary Benton might be trying to do here is he's not looking at it from the current financial perspective. He's trying to cement, regardless of who owns this franchise, a essentially a legal clause so that if this thing actually does go through, no matter what the ownership changes, it's almost like, okay, this is not going anywhere. And if a new ownership comes in, it's that triple down effectively of this team isn't going anywhere. Um, so it could be an incredibly intelligent move by Gary Bettman or depending on how the city council views it, it could be where, okay, if you're the city of Tempe, where maybe they still have some non-trust issues with the current ownership. Did they look at it as well? We don't look at this as a 30-year contract at this point, and I don't know if we want to get sucked into that. Um, I don't know. It, it's, a, yeah. it's an interesting development, um, and I'm still – and this is all assuming that they vote to move the plan ahead, which is still hasn't exactly. happened yet. Yeah. You know, and I, and I think that in principle, you're exactly right. And it's not a bad move by Gary Bettman. I just think, uh, Jesus, it's just like a player contract. It's a Ryan Suter 2.0. The term is way too long here. And there's no buyout clause. That's the problem. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and that's the question. That's the question. If an organization folds, are they still under contract? to hold that venue i think depending on how you write the terms yeah, right like possibly and that means the nhl is on the hook so is this a little bit of a maybe you could call it at the poker table a bit of a bluff and i, and by I thought gary it, batman maybe. and i thought it was interesting that gary batman so this was via video call said he endorsed the plan without reservation like boy there's nothing that you do without reservation with the coyotes in this day and age right now or the um, NHL. And, and mind you what else is he gonna say it's yeah least, so right so like i said you talk about the term. How about a ten-year no relocation plan? That is plenty of time to see if this franchise really has what it takes to be to have stability in this region. Now, the other piece of this that you talk about with thirty years, that goes back to if you're Tempe, maybe ten years scares the city council away because what if you have ten years of an organization that doesn't flourish under ownership, and then you have this dud that is sitting right smack dab in the middle of this city. So Correct. that's that's where it might be advantageous for them to sign that long-term deal too. I don't know. And I think you phrased it very well that, you know, is this good news? I don't know. Is it positive news? Depending on how you look at it and depending on where you're sitting, council, coyotes, NHL fans, otherwise, but it's going to be an intriguing time here. Yeah. And I mean, it, it's positive because they didn't say no to it right now. Yeah. Again, does it signal a lot of progress moving the needle? Not necessarily. I think there's a lot of folks that are misinterpreting what this city council meeting actually has accomplished. Um, so it's still good that they're at least taking it under consideration, but this is where you're getting a deep dive. This is where all the documents are being combed over with a very fine tooth comb with a magnifying glass. This is where really all the financials from the ownership are going to be very, very heavily looked at. And this has been sort of the focal point of the Merrill Wallow group and sort of the issues that they had that go back to Glendale and even some of his business practice prior to him owning the Coyotes. So this is now at make or break. So, so it's going to be interesting to follow. Yeah. So my final question for you, of course, as we're going to, all eyes are going to be intently watching the first games at ASU with ASU's logo on the ice and not the Coyotes logo, mind you. Right. Um, but the question is this, like we had just mentioned, the city council has voted to essentially just open negotiations. That's Correct. all this is. 
my question is this, do they get a deal done? So this is, it, it's hard to answer that honestly, because again, we we've seen information come through. We've had sources, mine, including secondary sources that tell me that this is where the scariest part of this process is, is when they start to say kind of like, you know, applying for a loan. It's like, okay, you say you make 60,000. Well, now show me in your W-2. Show me on where the assets are liquid. So I think this is where you're going to see a lot of the heavy digging. And if there are going to be some reservations in the Tempe City Council, again, this is supposed to be mostly privately funded. This also includes $40 million cash up front to do an environmental cleanup of the site that's under consideration in Tempe. Mm -hmm. So there's still a lot of hurdles to jump. And again, the biggest ones and the more leveraged ones are coming up now that negotiations are open. So um, this is really where the potatoes and the meat are coming to come on the plate. And uh, I, I, th I think the big question is, Noah, is not whether they get a deal, but how long does it take them to do it? Um, I think that's the key thing. Because if you think about it, for Tempe, for Phoenix Sky Harbor, for the Coyotes, and let's throw Arizona State in this situation, right? They've yeah. essentially agreed to a three to four year deal but what's to say this whole thing gets smacked down mm -hmm. um now the nhl has a bigger mess to clean up and one that unfortunately would probably force their hand at this point relocation so a lot that needs to be yeah. um, uncovered i'm 40 60 on it to be honest with you that a deal gets yeah. done i think that's that's my odds and i'm sticking to it I, I, I can't say I disagree with you right now with it. I think a lot of people are skeptical. Um, and I think there's going to be a lots of eyes on how the situation unfolds. Uh, speaking of which, uh, how about lots of eyes are unfolding? How about uh, the New Jersey Devils have hired Dr. Angus Mugford as their senior vice president of player development and performance um, and promoted former Olympian Megan Duggan. Um, uh, Dugan, sorry, for director of player development. Um, these were just both announced yesterday, uh, excuse me, Thursday. This is Saturday, not Friday that yeah. we're recording. Um, so, and I say that all lies in the devils because uh, for wild fans out there, the New Jersey Devils may be a name we hear with another current, maybe former player. So, uh, New Jersey making some moves. We don't talk about that. Anyway, <laughs> moving Hash, on to uh, load up. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> Moving on to other uh, front office or uh, player coaching news, if you will. Uh, we do have uh, an interim tag being lifted here in Montreal. Head coach Marty St. Louis has been given a three-year deal as the official head coach of the Canadians through the spring of 2025 after going 14-19-4 uh, in his finish of the season with Montreal. Rookie Cole Caulfield during that time led the way, 22 goals and 37 contests. Honestly, if he had played that way in the first half of the season, he probably would have taken uh, – the Calder Trophy, no I questions agree. asked. 100%. Uh, after that coaching change, but Montreal, Montreal was eight thirty and seven beforehand. So, um, kind of interesting uh, to see where Montreal ended up after all of these pieces. And we wish Marty St. Louis the best of luck moving forward. Speaking of coaches, Calgary's Daryl Sutter winning the Jack Adams Award uh, for the coach who has, quote, contributed the most to his team's success. Um, that was my pick. Hell yeah. This, this is his first Jack Adams in his 19-year career. That's kind that of an nuts? interesting yeah, kind of an interesting thing. And he kind of talked about how he didn't really want it, didn't really need that accolade in his life. So naturally, of course, he won the award. Um, <laughs> the, the Flames did exit in the second round of the postseason, but did win the Pacific Division with the best record in the Western Conference and the second-best goal differential in the NHL at plus 85 nick i mean is it more shocking that daryl sutter finally wins the award for the first time in almost two decades of coaching or was it more shocking that this team that was 
high potency got bounced so easily in round number two. You know, I think it was a little bit more of the latter. I think it was a little surprising. It wasn't that they got bounced. It's how they got bounced, right? Their defensive mm -hmm. structure, which Daryl Sutter came in and really sort of, as we've talked to uh, to Nick Dowd, again, former St. Clair State Husky, who uh, was a player under Daryl Sutter, who, you know, again, uh, was incredibly, what do we call it, uh, he was he held his players accountable, um, yeah. especially on the defensive side of the puck, and you have to be. And um, it was essentially a piece of the puzzle that Calgary needed to figure out to be a true cup contender. And it just stinks that you know they, they seem to just get away from that in the second round. And I I really feel like, and we talked about this in a couple episodes prior, that if Calgary sort of was we thought the stronger candidate out of the Pacific uh, to try to make it to the Western Conference final, unfortunately they uh, kind of got away from their identity. Um, it's, it's sort of shocking because Daryl Sutter is not one of those where, you know, he's been a successful coach. He's won two Stanley Cups as a head coach with the Los Angeles Kings most recently. Um, he's been a fixture in the NHL for so long, uh, but maybe just his playing style doesn't really give you that flash, you know, sort of a, but to yeah. quote a, a Sutterism, um, I think he was saying this word is park and ride. Yeah, park and ride. So Ser seriously, kind of shocked he maybe didn't get one during, especially you know one of those cup runs with the Kings. I think, right. um, yeah, uh, yeah. But uh, I think for his Sutterisms alone, like you mentioned, you definitely got to get him an award for something. Especially, yeah. especially if the broadcasters and the media are voting on this. Come on, people, you yeah. got you know the realm very well. Um, other award news. Speaking of uh, former captain for Daryl Sutter and current Los Angeles King Andre Kopitar taking home the Mark Messier NHL Leadership Award on Wednesday. He had sixty-seven points and eighty-one contest this season so the winner is actually chosen by mark messier himself and is given annually to the player who exemplifies great leadership qualities to his team on and off the ice during the regular season and someone who also plays a leading role in the community growing the game of hockey interestingly enough Andre kobitar has a hockey academy that covers 13 countries including the state of california as well he's currently 34 years old um Wow, what an extensive reach for an NHL player uh, to really not only grow uh, things in Southern California, but uh, all over, especially a lot of camps in Europe. Yeah, uh, the impact that Anze Kopitar has had on the NHL, I don't think will be felt for a number of years, especially with his influence in Europe. Um, again, Southern California, we talked about this um, at MNCAA just this week of how uh, California and even to a, a degree in terms of the junior development, how Arizona's become essentially an incredible hotbed and great place to develop young, high level talent. And uh, as far as ice hockey is concerned, so um, again, uh, what an incredible human being! Again, two cup rings to his name, and uh, an incredible human being as well. And uh, mm -hmm. you know, at 34 years of age, too, you know, you, you hate to talk about what the Kings do next, uh, but I think there's going to be a conversation pretty soon about Andre Kopitar uh, and what maybe his hockey future holds because. I, I'm not exactly. Does he have one or two more years left in this contract? Yeah, um, sure. it's 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 not many. I don't believe. In fact, I'm trying to buy myself a little bit of time. I, as I tell you, there. I tell you what, though, regardless, 67 points in 81 games played is still good for a guy who's age 34. So I think he's definitely due for probably at least one more two somewhat, more years. Yep. Yeah, somewhat big contract uh, to kind of maybe finish out the prime years of his career or tail end prime years of his career. But uh, like you mentioned, well deserving of that award. Our final two topics here quickly in the 
Huskies Illustrated Weekly Roundup, our last award uh, given annually to the player who best exemplifies the quality of perseverance, sportsmanship, and dedication to hockey. That is the Bill Masterson Memorial Trophy. And our winner was Montreal netminder Carey Price going through his battle um, with substances and his mental health battle as well. It does sound like he plans to try to suit up and play next season. There's been talk that maybe he isn't going to be back in the net, but it seems like he's working very hard to get back in the net, playing through some injury as well. Final topics, injury news. Uh, speaking of a goaltender, Carolina's uh, netminder Freddie Anderson did miss the postseason and is now reported with an MCL tear. Oof. Well, defenseman Jake Gardner for the Canes was finally cleared to play just three days after the team was eliminated from the playoffs by the New York Rangers. So poor Jeez. timing for him. Yeah. He missed pretty much all of the season with back and bilateral hip surgery. Finally, Boston star defenseman Charlie McAvoy will miss six months after surgery on his left shoulder this That's past a big week. One. And welcome in to episode number 114 here on the Hussies Warming House podcast. Myself, Noah Grant, alongside Nick Maxson here. I'm just getting done actually with a 12-hour shift in the hospital. So fresh off of that and Nick Maxson working as well to getting ready for uh, what is next for his future career endeavors as well. Nick, uh, how are you doing on the Saturday night? Doing all right. Um, just got back from a, a birthday party. My niece, uh, youngest niece, having her first birthday party. Uh, so very, very fun. And it, I think that the biggest part of it was uh, so my other niece. So my sister, um, who's got three kids, uh, the oldest, Brinkley, uh, when they put her little cake in front of her, she kind of reached into the cake. Frosting <laughs> came on and it was instant terror like why is this stuff stuck in me? And then for Miss um, Monroe, uh, she dives into it. And I'm not kidding you. Then it was a window swipe. It was a hurricane and cake was flying everywhere. It's quite a, it was quite funny to see how different uh, the reactions were. So uh, she was having a blast. Um, I uh, got us, you know, some nice food. She got uh, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of uh, presents she unwrapped and uh, uh, great to see her celebrate her first birthday. Yeah, super exciting, obviously, and uh, looking forward to presents that are always uh, the gifts that keep on giving. And speaking of that, the Huskies Warming House podcast, we're around for episode number 115. And uh, just to give our listeners a little bit as to what that entails, Nick's like, is that really a gift? Um, yeah, episode right. <laughs> episode number 115 uh, is going to come a little bit earlier than normal, so to speak, if you will. We will record it um, on Friday, and it should probably release sometime on Saturday, I'm going to imagine. So it might be a day early for that release of episode 115 or real scheduling snafu for us uh coming up this upcoming week but you know nick it could be worse we could be hockey canada let's talk about the update uh, related to that chl lawsuit so sit back and buckle up and then we'll get nick's opinion here so we have a lot of things coming out of this some some more factual related to the legal side and some things related to the reporter side so let's start with the legal side uh sports minister pascal sedonge has ordered a financial audit of an out-of-court settlement involving the woman who is alleging that she was sexually assaulted by junior hockey players following the Hockey Canada event in London, Ontario. If you missed that story, we definitely encourage you to check out episode number 113. We do remind our listeners that they do depend, depict graphic depictions of sexual assault. Uh, the victim did file a $3.55 million lawsuit against Hockey Canada, the CHL, and the unnamed players, and the lawsuit was settled and the allegations were never proven um, in court. Um, And she said this quote, and I thought this was kind of interesting, Nick. 
She said, quote, what I want to know and what I think all Canadians, and I, I think more than just Canadians, um, want to know, right. were there any public funds here that were used to cover up that horrible story of collective rape? What an interesting uh, comment here. And I, 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 t I tend to agree with her. So a couple of things, right? So as we talked last time, for those who missed it, you know, one of my frustrations with the settlement was that there was a non-disclosure agreement that was signed. Now, mind you, to be fair, both parties have to sign this and agree to it. So it's not like, you know, you have to do it or you don't. But and this could be, as you mentioned, Noah, very eloquently, it could be a protective thing also for the victim. Um, but my frustration was is that it also in inherently protects those who have been alleged in this. Now, when you settle out of court, that means nothing is brought to the public eye. That means things are sealed and we really don't get accountability, which was my frustration with the whole deal. Right. Um, now, from what it appears um, with this uh, essentially um, political angle, we'll put it to that way. And I say that very pointed because effectively what uh, Pascal St. Ange um, is doing here is trying to effectively uncover something or try to essentially bring more to light on this by using a public angle to it. Um, yeah. It's an incredibly intelligent move. Um, it's a very clever one. Now, here's where there might be a giant roadblock than that, you know, the non-disclosure agreement. So whether or not the civil matter, and again, this is a civil matter, not a criminal matter from what I understand, um, um, is brought to light. I'm not sure how far they can go with this. Now, yeah. it does, I think, echo what I said last week, which is, you know, I think there needs to be accountability for not just those who were involved directly, but also the organizations who it appears that they've taken a very big backseat to this when it was first um, reported or brought to light. Um, so in, in hindsight, Noah, this is potentially a positive thing. It's showing that they don't want this to be swept under the rug, which again, something I think we both are granted. We don't want to have happen and we have to yeah. have these difficult conversations. Um, again, I still, I'm still hesitant to really think, how much we're going to get out of this. I hope I'm wrong. Let me put it to you that way. Um, but I'm curious as to what this may lead to and to, and if it does to what extent. Yeah. Interesting to see kind of the facets. It's, it's not necessarily an independent investigation, but it's kind of working around the processes that has already been completed Correct. in court. So a couple of different angles here. A motion also passed on Thursday in Canada's house of commons, summoning hockey Canada could, to Canadian Heritage's Standing Committee, quote, to shed light on its involvement in a case of alleged sexual assaults committed in 2018. Now, some further digging has been done by Ken Campbell. His handle is at Ken underscore Campbell 27 on Twitter, who covers the NHL for the Toronto Star. He has actually reached out to the agent of every player on that 2018 team. Now, I do want to clarify here. These are tweets um, that have come out on Twitter and are in no way meant to represent legitimate factual information legally i want to point that out but it is an interesting topic of discussion um if a lot of these things are indeed true so a couple of the players that he had reached out to um victor mete who plays for the ottawa senators was in cancun during the gala he was the only player on the 2018 team did not be in attendance at that time. He was playing for the London Knights in the OHL. Uh, Kurt Overhard, the agent for Cal Foot, who plays for Tampa, I thought this one was really interesting, um, said also that the due diligence was done on the alleged sexual assault at the Hockey Canada Gala in 2018. So maybe a unique angle on 
how diligent that report mm, is. Again, we don't right. don't know how to confirm that. Um, it was determined that Cal Foot was not involved in any way, according to him. He played for Kelowna in the WHL. We talked about the college aspect of this as well, too. We got a couple of NCAA players coming up next. Dante Fabro, Nashville. Yep. Um, his agent, J.P. Barry, said Dante was in bed sleeping, wasn't a part of this in any way. Um, and like we said, it's believe that most uh if not all of those alleged in the sexual assault came from the chl um on this team that were involved as the eight players there um so he was coming from boston university in the ncaa kale mccarr the star defenseman from colorado his agent brian bartlett confirmed that mccarr was not involved in that and that he cooperated in the investigation he was playing for umass in the ncaa at the time Finally, last player that was named out of the 23. This is the fifth player here. Um, Jonah Gadjevich, very hard name to say, um, plays for San Jose, a very hard team to watch. What? Um, (laughs) Maintains uh, that their client uh, was not involved in the alleged sexual assault as well. He played for Owen Sound in the OHL. So a lot of moving parts here. Again, don't really have an accurate way to confirm any of this. Um, but there are some player agents that have reached back towards Ken Campbell. And I thought that was somewhat surprising knowing that, um, you know, the Mm -hmm. Toronto star is what it is. You can say whatever you want there, but also interested that some of those agents were a little bit more forthcoming than maybe had anticipated. And like I talked about last week, Nick, you talked about the accountability piece and, I think there are some players here that if they weren't involved in it, like Victor Mete wasn't even there, wouldn't you want to shout that from the rooftops? And the piece with accountability that you talked about, and I know that your angle is legal ramifications. Obviously, th- these are criminal acts, and you want them to be solved as such. But I, I do want to clarify, and something that you and I talked via text the other day, sometimes public shaming a little bit and almost getting not like ousted from the NHL, but kind of ousted from that public realm is sometimes more damning in some senses. Now, obviously you're more on the legal side where you're aiming to, is there, is there something that's going to transgress here in either direction? Do you think, or do you think we're, we're still at a point where we haven't quite tipped the scales yet? So I want to clarify your synopsis of mine Uh, legally. No, but I was more, surprised because I think the other angle you talked about was if I'm a player or in real, in real, in realistic sense, it was the player agents, not the players that are making these comments. Right. And again, we have no way to verify of what they're telling us is true. Let's be, let's first talk about that. Right. We have to clarify. Um, But if indeed your position is correct and indeed what we're hearing um, out in the public is indeed verifiably true, um, you are starting to see sort of that guilt by elimination sort of thing happen. Yeah. No, again, um, I'm very shocked that some of these agents, uh, well, let me rephrase that. I'm not shocked that an agent won't do it. I'm, I'm, I'm still not as shocked too that the players themselves haven't said a word because again, I talked about there being, uh, sort of that team sort of protective cocky culture thing that exists still. Yeah. Um, so, but let's just say that we start to whittle this down even more. Now, depending on how this plays out, if the government wants to open this up, yeah. the one thing I don't know is, does the NDA still matter in that sense? Was this a civil, or, and again, is it, if this is a civil case, if a criminal case is filed, that's yeah. completely different and not subject, I believe, to the NDA. So, um, and I, again, I, I hope for not only the victims, but not only the people who at some point, hopefully we figure out who it was involved yeah. and not only 
how Hockey Canada and the CHL have alleged to. I don't know if we can say a cover up because we don't know, but maybe kind of sw- kind of sweeping kind of it under the rug. rug. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, um, it's interesting. It's yeah. interesting. And I'm not sure again how how the federal and governmental process in Canada works. Obviously, a different legal system in the way that Correct. they run things as well. Too. You know, I had a question about this too, and again, I don't know based on you know I, I forget the name of the particular hotel that they were in in london but um you know a lot of these places uh for specific reasons such as this do keep a lot of footage related to who passes through their doors especially if you mm-hmm. have some sort of things adjacent to it that are you know like restaurants things like that as well too you gotta wonder nick if there is no video evidence and archives i don't know i'm no just way. you know throwing it and out there and- well it, it's a it's a fair question to ask the problem is I can't imagine, you know, and, and part of it is timing, right? So, for example, if if someone's killed, you have a subpoena by detectives within hours, if not days, um, to go in there and request footage. The problem is, you know, there's no standard of essentially how long or how, you know, any merchant or service provider has to keep it. In fact, there is, I don't have to have security footage. Maybe there isn't any security footage, right? But I would be hard pressed to think if this is just coming into the public circles now in 2022, when the alleged incident happened in 2018, I would be incredibly surprised if there was still any remaining footage, because again, the most common security system is digital. Now that gets written, uh, written over after a certain amount of time. Um, Now, mind you, they may have an old school where they burn DVDs. We don't know, but I would believe in the modern day, those chances are pretty slim. Yeah, certainly interesting. Here's the problem, though, too, Noah. And that doesn't just because there is footage of somebody in the hallway, it means nothing. It absolutely means nothing. Yeah, you're not catching anybody doing a criminal act. Yeah, no, I understand. But I think that, uh, again, I'm going back to the, the, the public shaming piece. And again, like I said, right. if you if you know that there's eight guys and you can identify eight guys and eight guys only in that hotel in that hallway at a specific time. I got to say, here's, just, just doesn't look good, you know? Well, it doesn't look good, but let's also understand too, that every, every person has a legal right, at least in the United States to yep. do process, right? Which means, are we publicly shaming somebody that has not been proven guilty in a court of law? So are we doing a disservice into that person too? when we have no idea what happened and we're putting what I would call, um, and I know that, you know, the biggest, the big case that we saw for this was, um, with the Acacia, the Kaylee Anthony case, where there's a lot of circumstantial evidence is what they call it, but nothing that actually proves that anybody that was involved um, was actually, you know, uh, guilty of a crime. So it's, it's a double-edged sword too. Now I'm not by any ways, I want to make sure I'm clear on this defending the suspects who we, we don't know who they are. And if we do know, I'm not defending them at all, but it's also like, because we don't know, I don't want us to see the the pitchfork nation uh, come out and, you know, have rallying cries for for folks that we just simply don't know by a process that we all should have the, the, the right to go through that they were indeed guilty of a crime that was committed. Yeah. Well, speaking of not defending at all and getting scored on in a way that it's absolutely criminal game three, just, (laughs) just finishing between Colorado and Edmonton, the Avs winning by a score of four to two. The Avs are up three to nothing in this series over the Edmonton Oilers game four is on Monday at 7 PM central time in the Western conference final. Uh, Nick, I think we kind of anticipated this series, maybe having a little bit more punch both ways. Jeez Louise. 
this Colorado team is good. Oh, that's new. Yeah. <laughs> but like, but like, you know what that is. I mean, you asked the Tampa Bay lightning back in that series against Columbus all those years ago. It's one thing to be good. Ask the Florida Panthers this year. Ask the right. Calgary flames. It's one thing to be good. It's another thing to carry that momentum and really and, put up or shut up and, and be on a mission too. Right. And yeah. I think again, um, with Edmonton, I think some of the, the concerns that we have seen or what we predicted are kind of coming to fold here. Right. Whereas, um, there's just not enough offensive depth with Edmonton. Again, Mike Smith and Miko Koskinen have been, uh, well, say it not up to par. And, uh, they, again, the depth of Colorado, um, is just way too deep and, Wow. Uh, again, no really shock to the folks who have followed the Avalanche last couple of seasons. Um, but I think, especially in a conference final, you expect a little bit more of uh, a series that trades blows. Um, but um, now that Edmonton's backs are against the proverbial wall, I'd be interested to see if they make some dramatic changes, not only in their lineup or if they do any sort of systematic changes. The problem is, you know, you play the game a certain way to get to this point, hard to make you know, very large changes at this point. It's now at this point more about execution than it is about making changes. So it's going to be a tough go for Edmonton, who's got a very tall mountain to climb. One that has been done not very often and against this squad going to be very, very tough to do. And less often, of course. In fact, I don't even know if there has been one in a conference final, to be honest with you at this point. I don't in terms think of a so, three right? comeback. Right. They, there's been one in the Stanley Cup final, um, like one or two in the second round. The rest have all been first round uh, um, comebacks, if you will. Uh, this game was tied 2-2 two to two halfway through period number three, and JT Confer with a game winner, and then empty netter tacked on for the Avs. You know, and finding good teams and championship teams find ways to win like that, where they're able to, you know, get end up back in a tie game and they just find that extra bounce or whatever it is. You know, what's interesting is one of those teams is the Tampa Bay lightning and Nick, you know, Mm -hmm. Tampa Bay losing in consecutive playoff games for the first time since 2019, that three to two loss in game number two was interesting game three coming uh, out what will be today for our listeners on Sunday at two o'clock central time, six to two was the final in game number one. This Rangers team, Nick has taken a Tampa Bay squad that has that element, that element of winning low scoring games, winning games where they're being outshot, winning games when they're being outchanced, winning high scoring games, you know, totally dominating opponents at certain points, having a goaltender steal a game. They have all those elements. And the New York Rangers, in what has been one of the best goaltending duels uh, that we have yes. seen in recent memory between Igor Shesterkin and Andre Vasilevsky for the Rangers and Lightning, respectively. Uh, it's been a good one. And so far, uh, it's definitely gone the way of uh, uh, the Broadway Blue Shirts. Certainly has. Um, again, with the Lightning, as you mentioned, it they have are in a position they are not normally used to. At least the last couple of years, losing back to back playoffs games for the first time since 2019. I believe that goes back to the Columbus series, uh, if I'm not mistaken, Noah. And it's going to be a response game here in Game Three. Now, lucky they're going back to home ice, a place that they've had a lot of success uh, both this season and postseasons as a past. Um, the big thing I think for Tampa is they they're just not collectively defending very well with the New York Rangers. And, and you got to give yeah. credit to a Gerard Gallant team that, uh, you know, really does preach uh, a wave after wave after wave um, heavy forecheck. Uh, I think the Rangers have flourished under your Ger- uh, Gerard Gallant system. Um, and again, when you're that good and you're creating positions, sometimes you create your own luck too. And I think the Rangers have done that. Um, again, no quit in this club. Um, it's kind of been their motto over this playoff season. And, 
they're getting the bounces in for Andre Vasilevsky, who has been very stellar. Uh, he's just not making those one or two key saves that they lightning need to kind of keep um, them win closer than they have been. So um, again, a pivotal game three coming up here for Tampa at uh, Amelie arena. They're just outside um, the waters of the uh, Gulf of Mexico. And uh, I think they will respond. I think they will get back in the series, but uh, again, you got to give credit to the, like you mentioned, the Rangers who have had a hell of, of a really good first two games here in the Eastern Conference Final. Yeah, Game 3 Sunday at 2 o'clock Central Time, and it's kind of interesting. You know, I don't think many people would have picked the New York Rangers to even be in this spot, let alone uh, where they are in the series. In fact, uh, uh, Nick and I on opposite ends on this one. Nick has the Lightning, and I have the Rangers advancing on in this one. But, you know, I would say out of the three cup runs, um, the two back-to-backs in this year's run for the Tampa Bay Lightning. This game three uh, coming up on Sunday might be the biggest one that they've had in any of those runs um, so far. Mm-hmm. This is a must-have, I think, for the Lightning. I don't care how good they've been in the past couple of years. I think if you go down three to nothing against a team like the Rangers and Gerard Gallant system, it's going to be too much to surmount from. And even so, if you get all the way to seven games, the game sevens have gone good for the New York Rangers so far. So it should be good and interesting to tune in to what should be another good goal sending battle that will do it for the main portion of the show we're going to talk a little bit more about the nhl playoffs though we're going to head on to our extra ice session and see who have been the most dominant performers in the postseason extra ice session nick maxson joining myself noah grand for episode number 114 here and nick uh, a couple of brain uh, brain teasers you know questions to think on, whatever you want to call them. Speaking of the NHL playoffs, and um, it's been an interesting discussion here. Um, You know, playoffs always kind of bring out the best in some of these uh, performers and some players. You talked about Evander Kane on his, uh, what was a torrid pace to start through the first two rounds of the playoffs. It's kind of petered off here in round number three. But, um, you know, your Justin Williams is, you know, the Mr. Game 7s, things like that. You know, this is is the time where heroes and heroics are made. So, um, you know, we each have our kind of choices, but Nick, in your opinion, um, and we might have the same player. We might not. We haven't, we haven't discussed this at all pre-show um, who in your mind, or if you have more than one, that's okay too. Um, who's really been the most dominant skater in the NHL playoffs as far as there's someone you have in mind that you're like, this player has just had another gear that, uh, you know, for whatever reason has been a, a key playoff performer. Uh, yeah. How about Kale McCarr? Um, and I say it because, I mean, first of all, as a defenseman, uh, seventh in postseason in scoring, he's got 17 points, uh, four goals, 13 assists uh, previous to tonight's game, at least from the stats that I can see, um, according to the NHL media site. Um, but it's more than just the points that he's producing. He's been a absolute uh stud on the back end again his speed is unmatched what he can create offensively has been incredibly impressive and has been a guy that jared bednar has counted on to match up against the Connor mcdavid line uh, which as of recently it's been kind of a super line with evander kane and leon dry settle to try to get some offensive production out of the edmonton oilers which again we talked about earlier in the show that I believe is, is a little bit thin after those three in terms of offensive production. Uh, so to me, Kale McCarr has just, he's looked so calm. He's looked so comfortable. Um, there's no hurry to his game. He, he makes great first passes. And the other thing is in transition, his feet are just unstoppable. Um, he, he's very, um, 
he's very sure of his decisions, whether to make that first pass or to get up on gear. Um, he drives possession into the offensive zone. Um, he can just do it all. And, and to me, um, he's been impressive in the playoffs of year, but I do think we've seen just another level of his play. And again, we're going up uh, against some of the top offensive guns that are not only in the Western Conference, but the NHL and Connor McDavid, Leon Dreisaitl, and Evander Kane, who still leads, uh, from my knowledge, uh, the entire playoffs and goals scored. Uh, that's a pretty tall task, and it seems like him, uh, he's done a good job of, of containing that. So I think, to me, Evander Kane has been incredibly impressive uh, going through the gauntlet they, they have gone through in the Western Conference. Yeah, certainly. I, you know, there's a lot of players that you compare from the list. 29 points for Connor McDavid. I mean, it's been unreal for the McDavid dry saddle comparison to Mika Zibanejad has been good. Adam Fox, another stud defenseman. Um, I might go with kind of an oddball here, Nick, sitting 12th on the list in terms of pure points in the postseason among all skaters in the NHL. That's Nazem Kadri. And we yeah. talked we talked mm-hmm. about him a little bit in the last series. The other guy that I would throw in there was actually his counterpart in the Blues series and David Perron. He was a wild killer yes. in round number one. But the one thing about Nazem Kadri, 12 games uh, to his credit at the time of recording, six, six goals, eight assists, 14 points. He's plus eight um, with six PIMs, a 1.17 points uh, per game average, um, 47 shots, just under 13% in the shooting percentage. But You know, he's a guy that when you look at some of the top performers on this list has the lowest time on ice per games played of any player. Um, I believe, uh, yeah, in the top 20, the next is Carter for at number 20 that fits in this list um, at just over 18 and a half minutes and is over 50% in the faceoff dot. He's been an agitator. He stayed out of the extracurriculars for the most part, and he's done you know, when players who have had past suspension history finally find the right side of that line, he's been able to agitate goat other players from the other team in the penalties. And he's been productive. He's been a clutch player, multi-goal games, multi-point games at key times, key contributing moments in which they needed it most. I mean, he's a reason why they got through the St. Louis and uh, team in round number two. And he's a reason why they've had a jump so far against the Edmonton Oilers in round number three. He has really impressed me. I know he's not going to be, uh, you know, the, the, the pick in terms of layman's terms for a lot of people, but he has some of those intangibles, so to speak, that we've talked about him. What would a playoff with Nazem Kadri not getting bounced for <laughs> five or six games in right. suspension really looked like a career year for him in the regular season and the postseason has carried right through. He's a guy who's earned a big payday so far and has really, really impressed me um, on the player side as well, too. So a lot of great picks here, you know, going, going through some of this list, but I really think the top 15 or 16, uh, maybe even top 20, so to speak, are all notable candidates, but uh, yeah, kind of an interesting choice, I think. And help and to your point for Kadri, um, what that has done for the Colorado Avalanche is allowed them to break up that Ranton and McKinnon mm-hmm. and Landeskog trio. And they were sort of if there was one sort of Achilles heel with Colorado the last couple of series that we also kind of had the same issue with them as Edmonton is, is that they had a big three up front, but after that it was kind of thin in terms of their depth. But if you look at that second line with uh with uh, Valerie Nachuskin, um and Miko Ratnan and Nazem Kadri, oh my goodness gracious, that's a formidable top six that Colorado has behind McKinnon uh Oh, geez. I just lost my spot here. My goodness. Yeah. Uh, Landis Gog, McKinnon, and Arturi Lekkinen. 
Um, you know, who would have thought Lurk Lekin it would be a first line four out uh, left winger. But um, yeah. at the end of it, though, but again, it's allowed Bednar to give them some balance in their top six, which they really did not have the last couple of playoff runs. And, um, you know, going back to the regular season, Nazem Kadri, um, a career year, he's going to get one hell of a pay increase if he wants it. Uh, if he if he if he chooses to leave Colorado, I think that they're going to have a tough time affording him and the pay raise that Nathan McKinnon is going to demand here this offseason. Uh, so he's definitely earned it. He, like you mentioned, regular season, he was dominating as well, and it's just continued throughout the playoffs. So I like your pick. Um, I, I think he's been um, almost, dare we say, that the missing piece that Colorado has maybe needed. I know that they looked at you know, goaltending with Darcy Kemper, uh, opposed to Philip Grubauer. But if there was one offseason move that I think is getting overlooked a bit, I think Nazem Kadri may be that pinnacle spot that if they were able to go on and win the Stanley Cup, I think you can look at the addition of Nazem Kadri that might be the most impactful for the Avalanche in their run. Yeah, it's very interesting, you know, some of these key contributors too. And defensively too, again, Adam Fox was another guy that we had thrown in there along with Kale McCarr has been productive. But Kale McCarr's plus minus at plus 11 is pretty impressive. How about the fact that the Oilers um, have not had great success in round number three and Connor McDavid entered, I believe, the contest tonight or just finished the contest tonight at plus 17. Uh, pretty impressive stuff um, yeah. from the Oilers superstar. Nick, on the goaltending side, a lot of goaltenders here uh, have came and went. Uh, a lot of goaltenders have been bounced around in a lot of these playoffs rounds, seen a lot of second uh, string goaltenders, so to speak, including in the Avalanche series with Francois jumping in um, in the past two games. I'm going to start with my pick, Nick, and uh, I don't know if I'm going off the board with this one, but I'm going back a ways from my pick for the best goaltender in the NHL, and I'm going strictly by, oh, my God, was he unbelievable. Jake Ottinger, oh, my <sighs> goodness, he Holy was cow. unbelievable how good he was. A 9.54 save percentage, a 181 goals against average, a single goal away from pushing his team uh, basically single-handedly into the second round of the playoffs. In fact, um, you look at some of the goaltenders that made it into um, – you know, for example, you got Sergei Bobrovsky uh, in here who ended up with 276 total saves. Nick, how about this? Jake Ottinger with uh, a round less played um, had 272 saves. <laughs> you know, yeah. you just look you just look at what he was able to do. I'm very intrigued to see how he develops for the stars next year because he was just that good. And Calgary. um Say what you want about them in the second round, but they had chance after chance after chance in round number one. They were held fairly limited by a pretty stingy defensive team in Dallas, um, but it was a impressive one-man show uh, from, I believe, the former uh, Denver Pioneer. Uh, if I'm not, is it Denver? Yeah, it's Denver Pioneers, isn't it? No, Ottinger, I think, was oh, no. out east. B-U. He was, should be BU. BU, that's what it is. Former Lakeville North. B-U-D-U, same Yes, thing. right. <laughs> uh, but, you know, speaking of Lakeville, right, uh, part of a, uh, I believe, an undefeated high school winning uh, state championship mm-hmm. there, Jake Ottinger. Um, my pick is kind of similar. Now, it's because it's easy to look at Shesterkin. It's easy to look at Vasilevsky. Um, I think Pavel Francis, there's, there's a lot of accolades for him coming in yeah. relief of Darcy Kemper. There's no question there. But how about Connor Ingram of Nashville? Um, to me mm-hmm. um and you could almost for me as a 1b pick how about jordan bennington Saw too um yeah so yeah. and now connor ingram almost single-handedly willed nashville to a one victory um in that series and uh again for 
effectively a team that was so overmatched in that series. Um, uh, his goals against, again, 364, but how about a 913 save percentage? And a, again, against a very explosive offensive team, um, I want to say it was a game two. Uh, Connor Ingham really came to light. I think he's got a bright future ahead of him. Um, he came in, and again, coming in relief of the injured UC Saros, again, for Nashville. Um, again, goaltending no matter who was in there was going to be pelted and peppered with, with vulcanized rubber, no matter who was in that. And I really do think he almost had the troops rally run up, but again, Nashville is way overpowered. And uh, going back to my Jordan Bennington pick uh, when, when Billy Huso, um, who had the wilds number, let's go back to that series when he, uh, essentially sort of started to falter. Uh, Jordan Bennington came in and essentially sort of held par and allowed St. Louis to kind of settle down again. Um, unfortunately, the injury for St. Louis, I think, was pretty impactful to them in their series yeah. against the Avalanche. Um, so to me, those two, as far as guys that are away from the, the current spotlight, to me, had a pretty impressive playoff series and, and I think opened up to some eyes and raised some eyebrows in the league and uh, got to give some credit to those two guys as well. Yeah, I got one more for you here, and it's not relying on save percentage or goals against average because the numbers weren't exactly pretty. He was three saves away from actually having north of a 920. Um, that was Jonathan Quick, and I think especially in the first round, so he has a 904 and a 343. Um, only saw 228 shot attempts, though, so very low volume, so you get that fluctuation of those statistics very quickly. You know, he w- he looked vintage Jonathan Quick at times, a la 2012, 2014, uh, in some of the saves that he made in that first round. And, um, you know, I-, I know for whatever reason, you know, it, it wasn't uh, to be for the Los Angeles Kings. But I tell you what, um, the impressiveness that I saw from him, you know, he was he's a guy who's battled a lot of injuries, um, kind of the kind yeah. of the middle to latter part of his career, um, really bounced back. And it was a really impressive showing for some of the old boys for the Los Angeles Kings in general, um, wishing, of course, Dustin Brown the best in his retirement. We talk about Andre Kopitar winning the Mark Messier Leadership Award. Um, the L.A. Kings were a pleasant surprise, I think, for a lot they of were. hockey fans, um, not to mention Philip Deneau being one of the best shutdown centermen as a top six player yes. in the NHL. So um, but hey. You can't put the best lineup on the ice without a good coach that knows exactly what he's doing here, Nick. And the bread and butter, um, Daryl Sutter winning the Jack Adams for the regular season. His team is done. Um, who is the coach, in your opinion, uh, throughout these playoffs that has, you know, either been the best coach or has there been someone that's been a really good tactician or really played to the structure of his team and his identity? Gerard Gallant, no question yeah, about it. Uh, well, it's, it's it's unfortunately an easy pick because it, it goes back beyond the playoffs, right? It's the regular season. Um, he was the front runner when uh, they parted ways with David Quinn. Uh, mm-hmm. So, and again, you you kind of wonder with with Vegas too. You know, was there was there something behind the scenes we weren't aware of? I was very shocked when Vegas pulled the trigger on Gerard Gallant, especially midway through the season when they just got on like a seven win out of 10 streak. So it was kind of interesting, but um, for Gallant and for the Rangers and where they're at, you know, for a team that what was it 18 or 17 uh, sent out a letter to their season ticket holders and says, you know, we're kind of in a rebuild and uh, you know, it's been, uh, I would say a rebuild, but a kind of a retool and uh, yeah. look at what this team has done. And again, the, the talent, 
that they've had is pretty similar to their roster last year. But look at what Gerard Gallant has done to maximize um, their talents on the ice uh, from the back end of the front end. Shesterkin's not having to bail them out every single time. Uh, this team is always looking to attack. They, I think they're getting the most out of Chris Kreider, who had a heck of a 50-goal season. Oh, my goodness. Uh, again, Artemi Panarin not having to rely on the bread man. Uh, Mika Sabanajad has been very, very good. And again, you have a great back end with um, – Probably with uh, did I, I'm going to trigger some people. Jacob Truba, um, <laughs> um, and then Adam Fox. And how about this? Uh, the the Edina Minnesota. How about Keandre Miller, who looks incredibly poised yeah. for a young defenseman in the back end? Um, again, a lot of things clicking. You can't have a lot of that young talent again with trying to do a lot, especially in the back end, to be up in the offensive production. Um, that's just fantastic coaching. That's great tactical tactical mm-hmm. work, and a big reason why his system has been, um, you know, in the Stanley Cup final as recently as 2018. So um, again, to me, it's Jargalon. Yeah, hard to argue with Jared Bednar in Colorado. Um, I think a lot of people sleeping on Jay Woodcroft and the job that he's done for the Edmonton oh Oilers as yes. well, too. I think the third round, um, depending on how the Oilers finish round number three, um, could really kind of be diminished, unfortunately, with the results that they've had through the first three games. Nick, uh, I'm going to go with the coach that is no longer on the team that he was coaching. Rick um, bonus. Rick bonus going mm-hmm. back to round number one. And the reason I mentioned that again, and I, geez, why are we talking about the stars? I hate the stars. Um, <laughs> but beyond that, um, here is a coach that um, I think Gerard Gallant is definitely the coach for picking someone that has really molded his team into a winning product, so to speak. You talked about mm-hmm. Jared Bednar, John Cooper for the Lightning, guys like that that know how to win. But the thing with Rick bonus is he had a team that, had no offensive firepower whatsoever defensively was very stingy, but you know, was not the best in the league. I mean, really they had their best guy was uh Joe Pa and Joe Pavelski um, leading the charge. Um, and, and, uh, and before and a, he took over, uh, they were being very leaky defensively too. Yeah, seriously. Um, and, and a good goaltender that obviously kept him in the series, but for what he had, especially the injuries heading down the stretch in the game six and game seven. I mean, this reminds me a little bit of Mike Havlin's Colorado college tigers in that opening round matchup in the NCHC frozen faceoff uh, two years ago against the St. Cloud State Huskies and almost winning a game where they were outshot in shots, what is it, like 78 to like 14 or 20 or something like that. I mean, it, it was, was a, it was not good. Huge, that mar- <laughs> huge margin, but to be able to do that and be one shot away and really the Stars really forced the issue at the start of that overtime before Johnny Gaudreau came back. Um, stars took a penalty that kind of swung momentum too. I mean, what a heck of a coaching job getting uh, a team that really, for lack of a better term, didn't really have a whole lot of business being in a lot of parts of those series. They were outplayed for the majority. They were outchanced for the majority. And he found a way to find a combination that was able to survive the gauntlet. Bend but don't break is a huge theme in the NHL playoffs if you want to go and win a Stanley Cup over the course of two months and change. So Rick Bonus is a guy that I thought was really impressive. Um but I do got to give it to you. I think Gerard Gallant has just been that good that it's hard to argue with the Rangers production as well. And uh, recently on, uh, I, I believe it was Dallas radio, Tyler Sagan was asked about Rick bonus and just the, the things that he mentioned, you know, not only as, you know, cause it, let's go back to the Lindy Ruff era in, in Dallas, which didn't last very long. Um, <laughs> but you know, there was a time where Ben and Sagan were dual 40 goal scorers in the NHL. Um, and the unfortunate part was they were giving up as many goals as they were scoring. Um, Sagan then touched on like, but well, then we kind of lost a little bit of our scoring touch because we wanted to be better defensively. It kind of almost went from one extreme to the other. Um, surprisingly in Dallas where, uh, they went from having some great guns offensively to kind of just not 
having the freedom offensively, it seems like. Um, and then Rick Bonus coming in and and, take, and Tyler Sagan talked about having that balance, right? We want to be offensive, but we also want to make sure we take care of our business on the defensive end. So finding that right mix uh, of the two. Uh, but the biggest thing that came out of Tyler Sagan's mouth was, you know, Rick Bonus, he's a hell of a coach. He holds everybody accountable, but he taught us how to be a better person. He was the guy that you could walk into the locker room and we could talk not about hockey. Um, he was a role model for, he was a family man. And you talk about, you know, a guy that was incredibly well-respected around that rank. And I think just the way that he approached his players and, you know, got them to buy in and say, and just the way that, he essentially carried himself uh, in that organization. There was a ton of respect for that coach. And you could see, as you mentioned, there was, you know, they weren't the most skilled team um, on the ice, um, but they played a system where they gave themselves a chance uh, to, you know, to put themselves in a position to win. And, you know, it's, it's tough to see because I know Rick is a very proud, very, you know, a very prideful coach. And it sucks to see that not only him, but his entire coaching staff stepping down after their round one exit. Um, I'm very curious as to the direction, because to me, Dallas is at a crossroads. Uh, you know, Tyler yeah. Sagan and Jamie Ben are, are not getting any younger. Um, as far as Dallas is concerned, yeah, they've got one of the better uh, younger goaltending prospects in Jake Ottinger that are is starting to really take the mold. And, and this playoff experience is only going to benefit them and the stars. But you kind of wonder, um, with Joe Pavelski also being, what, 38 years old, turning 39 maybe coming up soon, um, there's a lot of older talent that isn't quite the most fleet of foot. I'm kind of wondering if this might signal maybe more changes coming for the Dallas Stars. Um, be very curious to follow this team um, once we hit the offseason. Does Rick Bonus coach in the NHL next season? I that's a great question. Um, I don't know if it if he does. It's not a head coaching spot. Um, mm -hmm. But I think that for Rick Bonus, who's been around the game for a long, long time, um, you kind of wonder if not only with him and his entire staff, you know, that kind of signals the respect mm -hmm. that they have with each other. Um, I would think that at his age, he is not a spring chicken either. That he may also have said, you know what, I, I've been there, done that, and maybe I'm done. I wouldn't be shocked either way. But yeah. if he does coach somewhere in the NHL, um, I don't know. I have a hard time seeing it, but maybe maybe I'm crazy. I don't know. Well, I have answers for that. But um, yeah. uh, some so people met – Sort of the doctors anyway. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see what the state says. Some people say uh, that, that Philadelphia <laughs> is in the mix. You know, if there's one team that I could see him going to, I could see the Winnipeg Jets. I think that they're at an interesting spot where they maybe need yeah. a little more defensive structure and offensively they're doing okay. But nonetheless, I digress. My final question for you here, Nick revolving the NHL playoffs you have of course uh the Tampa Bay Lightning getting ready for game number three um Edmonton down in a three to nothing hole out nice. of the out of the Lightning and the Oilers which of these teams if both if any or if none make it to a game six on their home ice it's Tampa um I I think Edmonton is down and out at this point um you know and, and again it's not really as much to do with Edmonton as I believe it is that Colorado is just a wagon of a team. Um, and, and I think you mentioned it very well. I think Jay Woodcroft has been very quietly. Uh, I know at least in the U S and know up in Canada, they've been, you know, essentially heralding of the job he's, he's done turning them around where they jumped out to such a great and fast start. And then they just hit a wall. Um, under uh, Coach Tippett, and he comes in and he really does right the ship. I mean, they were, I think they had the best record post All Star game, if I remember correctly, yeah. um, in the regular season. And 
you know, what this does for Edmonton, if anything, is it shows, I think they have the right coach now, um, you know, to, to lead them forward. Um, but now they're going to have to take a serious look at uh, the makeup of this hockey team, especially on the defensive end. And how about goaltending? Um, I don't think Miko Koskinen um, is the answer. Mike Smith is over 40 years old. I don't know how much stock you want to put into uh, that goalie tandem. So I think they could be in the market for a goaltender um, and certainly on defense too. So we'll see. Um but to me, it's Tampa. If there's any team that can turn it around, that's got the experience to not feel flustered, to feel like we're going to home ice, we can do it. Uh, it's Tampa. I just don't think Edmonton has enough gas left to compete against uh, Colorado. Final very quick question. Uh, interim tag, will it be gone uh, behind Jay Woodcroft's name after this season? I would be shocked if it took them more than a few hours. All right, should be interesting. Like we mentioned, game number three tomorrow slash today on Sunday at 2 o'clock for the Tampa Series. Game number four, 7 o'clock for the Edmonton Oilers hosting the Colorado Avalanche looking to climb out of a 3 to nothing deficit. Those times are central time. As far as our times, the Huskies Warming House podcast episode should probably be coming out sometime this upcoming Saturday. We'll record uh, on Friday evening, so uh, excited to talk about that for episode number 115. For Nick Maxson, I'm Noah Grant, and from the Huskies Warming House podcast, we will see you soon in the den. And your one-timer come in, they score! Ripped in! A bomb from Perks! So Dana Rasmussen fires and she scores! Dana Rasmussen for the Huskies. Dwayne Kaprizov in for a chance to win it. He scores! Now 42.6 seconds away from wrapping up the school's first ever title.